Hey everybody and welcome once again to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. And this is Dan. And as you may already be aware, we have a theme month currently in progress. We've been covering movies that prominently involve time loops. These are stories where characters experience a set period of time over and over again. What are some of the things we've talked about so far, Dan. Yeah, I mean, a time loop movie, as I think about it and define it, as we discussed pretty extensively in our previous episode, a recap of Palm Springs, is what you might call a Groundhog Day knockoff. So we talked about what are the Groundhog Day rules for time loops, um, what are kind of some of the implications for the character and the world and some of the things that we come to expect in a time loop we we watched last week a romantic comedy time loop and this week we have something a little bit different yes that's because this week i've queued up happy death day a 2017 film which is billed as a horror movie i think that is a little bit debatable certainly it's at least a horror comedy and it leans into elements of other genres so firmly, I think it might be a stretch to call it a pure horror movie. Yeah, I think it pretty clearly follows slasher conventions, at least many of them, if not all of them. Uh, so I think this one is pretty squarely... I think you would put the horror label on it, and I think it would be the first one, although it's... A PG-13 slasher comedy, so it's not particularly heavy or gloomy or scary. There is a masked killer murdering people with knives, so I guess that puts you pretty firmly into that territory, but I don't know that I felt horrified very often. I think that's fair, definitely. It's a almost more thriller in, in that sense. This movie was directed by Christopher Landon, and it stars Jessica Roth as Tree Gelbman, She's our protagonist, and then our uh, deuteragonist, I guess. The most prominent supporting character is a guy named Carter, played by Israel Broussard. Yeah, Cr Christopher Landon is interesting. Has, since this movie, I think, tried to develop a brand as a guy who does fun, gimmicky horror movies, because he's done a sequel to this. He did a movie, I think it came out in 2020, called Freaky which is a body swap horror movie. And then he's doing, I believe, a third Happy Death Day movie as well. I think we will be talking at least a little bit about the sequel, 2019's Happy Death Day to You, because how could you make a sequel to a time loop movie and not have us talk about you? <laughs> and that one ended with also a sequel setup of sorts. So I think we have not seen the last of this franchise. This movie was put out by Bloomhouse, which is a relatively recent medium-sized movie studio, and they definitely specialize in horror films. They've put out pretty much any big-name horror movie you've heard of in recent years, just about they're behind Insidious and The Purge movies, 
they released uh, Jordan Peele's Get Out. They did the Unfriended movies and also some recent high-profile remakes like they did the 2018 Halloween sequel and the recent Invisible Man remake. They did that one too. So if you read any Inside Baseball, Inside Hollywood type stuff, Jason Blum, the guy who created the Blumhouse studio, is among the most interesting and compelling figures in movie making right now. He, as you mentioned, pioneered this new sort of assembly line release system where basically people, they, they make micro-budget films, almost entirely horror, but they've done a lot of, a, a few dramas as well. And they branched out into little things here or there. And they're, they're a stell to directors and creatives is we'll give you complete creative control. We won't be the type of producers that cut up this or that or tell you what it should look like or how it should work. We'll let you do that. We'll pay you almost nothing but give you a significant portion of the equity. We will help you figure out how to keep your costs down so you can stay in these micro budgets and we'll let you run with it from there. Even uh, stars typically get equity more than they get salary. They basically get the minimum possible salary depending on kind of the tier of the billing and how much speaking they have. It's always like the the minimum, but they get some portion of equity. So in the case of the second Happy Death Day to you, it made like $50 million, which was significantly less than was projected, but it still only cost $7 million to make. So it was still a financial success, even though by other metrics, it was a flop because it didn't beat the projections. And at a big studio, if you had a budget of $50 million, the difference between 50 and 75 million revenue would be the difference between losing money and making a modest amount of money. So this guy, Jason Blum, has developed a reputation for finding these up-and-coming directors and basically giving them a chance to make a film of their own doing. And there have been a lot of prominent directors, as you mentioned, mostly in horror, but in other things too. The Get Out was a big one, so that was uh, Jason Peele. But Damien Chazelle, the director, he had his breakout with the the drummer movie Whiplash and has since gone on to be one of the hottest names in Hollywood. He makes, he made La La Land, a few others. It's a really compelling model, but apparently like 40% don't even get picked up by distributors. They just get dumped to DVD or dumped to streaming. And, but when they're so cheap to make, that's really not that, that big of a deal. So if, if you're kind of curious at all in the business of movie making and what people are thinking about these days, I encourage you to look up Jason Blum and his, his Blumhouse studio. There was a good podcast on it too. So yeah. Yeah. Horror films have long had a reputation that they can be made cheaply. And if they get popular at all, all the returns are profit. And it sounds like this studio has really made good use of that model. It says that happy death day cost about 5 million to make and earned $120 million at the box office. And the sequel, which, like High School Musical 2 and 3, has a noticeably larger budget than 1, that one, it said, cost $9 million and made a modest $50 million. So, less than the first movie did, but still, when you're paying you know, 10 and you're getting 50 that's a pretty good return. 
apparently uh, Bloomhouse's first claim to fame was they put out Paranormal Activity, which, according to a lot of metrics, is like the most profitable movie of all time, because all you needed was, you know, stuff falling over in front of a webcam and spooky sound effects, and that's the movie. So don't have to pay very much. Yeah, that that movie cost it cost fifteen thousand dollars to make, which is like tiny pennies in the world of movie making. And the way that they did it is the actors were also the cast and they didn't have any other set staff or anything. And it is by percentage, at least the most profitable film in Hollywood history, not by raw dollars, but it was made for $15,000 and it took in a quarter of a billion dollars. Yeah. Percentage wise. So before we dive into telling the story of our movie, did we want to wax poetic on any other time loop topics? Sure. So last week, we kind of opened with a look at Groundhog Day, kind of laid out some of the rules and some of our basic thoughts on time loops. And I thought it would be fun if each subsequent outing of Time Loop Month, we had some sort of open-ended prompt, not specifically related to the movie, but about our thoughts on time loops. So the question I wanted to pitch today is, Brian... If you got stuck in a time loop, what would your first 100 days look like? They should ask this at presidential debates. <laughs> you learn more about someone than some of the questions they do ask. Right. So I think at that point, you're still trying to suss everything out. I think one thing I would do is like see how far I could actually drive in the course of that time. Although I guess... Um, what Palm Springs did address that at this point you could just get on a plane and pretty much reach anywhere on the earth within 24 hours. So that's not too much of a limiting factor unless like in Groundhog Day, you've got a snowstorm on the day, something to inhibit you. So I, I, I'd like to see how much ground I could cover. That's one. Then I would probably be in the messing around stage early on if I were able to determine that it was a time loop. Uh, I'd probably be doing a lot of eating the junk food like Bill Murray does. What else? You know, it's it's early on, so you're not quite to the stage of uh, dedicating yourself monk style to learning difficult skill sets. Uh, I don't think that's on the docket first off. What about you? What comes to mind first? So assuming that this is basically a normal day, let's just say a normal weekday, that I wake up, and that's the start of a time loop, and I keep waking up on a normal weekday. Once I get through the first you know, two or three days of what's going on here and really determining that it is, in fact, a time loop, let's just say it's Groundhog Day-style rules. So it's when you go to sleep, you wake up the next day. Or I guess that would be Palm Springs. I think Groundhog Day didn't really address what happened if you stayed up all night, to my recollection. Palm Springs, it was whenever you fell asleep, you woke up where it was. So so I'm married and I have two kids. And the thing that I think I would want to avoid is going too deep into the, like having this long history of relation of interactions with them that I can remember that they can't. I would want to get stay away from the, the weird stuff where like we kind of talked about it last week, how Andy Sandberg's character had basically had many interactions with Kristen Milioti's character before she entered the time loop, and that kind of colored 
their opinion of each other as they attempted to exit the time loop. I would want to avoid that. So I would actually try to minimize my interaction with people that I know. Because basically make it as seamless a return to the real world once I can. I think, I mean, I would want to enjoy my time. If I know that there's not really any stakes for me not doing my responsibilities, I would, of course, stop going to work virtually. I would instead play video games, read books, watch movies. I mentioned in a previous podcast that I'm trying to get through 1,001 movies to see before you die very, very slowly, chronologically. I would definitely use some of these 100 days to make some progress on that list. And I think it's kind of hard to say. 100 days is a long time, but not crazy, crazy long. I do think I would start to think about the skill thing. I would try to determine if there's something I really want to get up on, whether it's playing the piano. I don't know. The other thing that I would want to spend some time researching is cryptography. And here's why. And we're actually going to talk a little bit about this, maybe, in Death Day to You, the second one. Obviously, anything you make is gone. So if I typed up a story, let's say, as I started writing a novel, I wrote 10 pages in a day, went to sleep, those 10 pages would be gone. But what if I was able to compress it in such a way that rather than 10 pages, that was uh, captured in 100 characters that could then somehow be decompressed into that or something like that, some way where I can figure out how to preserve more information than just what is in my head. I would, I would try to think about that because if you can start preserving stuff from day to day, that drastically expands the number of things that, that you can do. So I don't know if there's any means by which that would be possible, but if I have all the time in the world, I'm definitely going to try and figure that out. Those are some good ideas. I know I, I pull in a lot of YouTube videos that I watch, but Lately, I've been watching some cooking YouTubers, and there's a guy who makes portable soup, and you basically, the soup stock, all the, all the salt and savory elements of the soup, if you dehydrate the soup, you can preserve it in like these little pucks. It's like bouillon cubes, basically. It's like what a bouillon cube is. But if you could do that with like a book, and then you apply whatever you need to do to decrypt it and you deconcentrate, you dilute it, and then you've got a legible information in its original form. That's really interesting. Yeah, exactly. That, that's the thing I'd try to do. May very well not be possible, but... Or you also raised the point that there'd be fewer hurdles to clear later on if you're not surrounded by people that you normally see all the time on a regular day. And actually, both of the movies we've talked about so far, Groundhog Day and Palm Springs, involve characters who have traveled somewhere that they usually aren't. They've kind of removed themselves from their usual surroundings. And I hadn't really thought about that aspect of it before. Yeah, I mean, if I were somewhere else where I wouldn't ever see them again after that day, like it is in Groundhog Day or... Palm Springs, that definitely changes the calculus of how I want to interact with people. But I think if I'm in my normal environment, I think I want to minimize my interaction with other people because I don't want to, again, get down into weird territory. Right. Well, at the very least, it minimizes repetition if you don't have the same interactions with the same people over and over. That's true, yeah. You also have to think about 
where do you have to be when what is more mandatory than other things like if you've got a family you probably got to feed your kids and you probably got to do that every day probably more than once a day i'm just guessing yes they tend to eat the same number of meals that we eat okay good to know um but like in groundhog day his job is that he's got to be in the square in the morning to give the news report and some days he welches on that but we've all got like a list of places we're expected to be at given times and if you're living the same day over and over that's definitely going to be a source of repetition right now i think roy one of the characters from palm springs did that and he found some peace in it because once he had accepted that it was eternity for him then he could at least be around the people he loved and if my time loop went that long i think i might try to realign my philosophy on how i interact with my family but i think in the short term i'm not quite at that phase we're talking first 100 days i would be focused on still enjoying those days i don't think it would have gotten boring yeah i think long term i'd probably start diving into learning languages because that's something i think of as like a pretty big time sink but if you suddenly have an overabundance of that resource seems like a good thing to put it to yeah i think that's fair for me, the one is like learning musical instruments, reading really long books. If, if I had infinite time, those are the things that I, I would want to dive into. But heck, if you go long enough, language would probably be on that list at some point, too. So shall we start talking about the meat of the movie now? Sure. All right. So that was maybe not the smoothest segue ever, but <laughs> we do have a job to do. We have a place and a time that we're expected to be when you turn on our podcast. And we summarize the plots of movies. At least that's what we've done the first 22 episodes, and I see no reason to make a departure quite yet. So Happy Death Day opens with a sorority girl named Tree Geldman waking up in a dorm room college bed next to this guy named Carter. We get the sense that they haven't met each other prior to this night at least she is not very familiar with him he's got a like reminder of his name and it's clear pretty early on that this guy likes movies i think at least that's what you can discern from his surroundings he's got a bunch of movie posters on his walls did you catch that dan yeah i did there were definitely a few of them it's kind of like what i wish my dorm room had looked like when I was in college with posters and stuff, but I was even messier than this guy and I didn't want to spring for full posters and framing and stuff. So I just had a couple things here and there, but I liked the vibe of, of all the different movie posters. Some of the posters he's got are for they live. He's got like this fan made back to the future poster. And if you look it up, all of these movies were released by universal. So they're they're going in-house with this set decorating but the general theme is like sci-fi speaking of universal the universal logo as it came through I, I don't know if you noticed this it did like its own mini time loop where like it started to come around and then it rewound and started to come around again right. it was like zoop, and it kept kept restarting definitely because they're not hiding this card behind their back that this is going to be a time loop movie. So Tree, as she's 
coming to her senses. Oh, and I think we said it, but her nickname is Tree. Full name Teresa goes by Tree the whole movie. I was a little bit surprised because here is our second (laughs) movie where time travel is central. And we have a female character named Tree. After, if you might remember, Kristen Schaal appeared as the Duchess of Tree in Kate and Leopold. I like to imagine that maybe this tree is a descendant of that tree. Interesting. Get sucked into time travel. Because this tree is in a sorority, so I imagine her family is well-to-do. But she's getting her bearings. She's still, you know, a little hungover. Grabs up her clothes and storms off, leaving Carter in the dust. And as she dashes out the door... She passes Carter's roommate, who was sexiled overnight, this guy named Ryan, who, for the most part in this movie, is just in the background, being inconvenienced by this whole thing. Right, he, he jumps in and makes some misogynistic remark and, uh, and about, did, did he get lucky last night? And it's one of those things that, spoiler, when she wakes up here, that gets on her nerves the same way that... Uh, Put your booties on, or whatever it is from Groundhog Day, gets to to Phil Connors. Right. So she makes the walk of shame back across campus to get to her sorority house. And sure enough, there's a whole string of events that we know we're going to be seeing over and over again. There's like a couple that gets sprayed by a sprinkler, and there's this frat pledge who collapses. So just little beats that are going to be looping soon. This is the equivalent of Phil, Phil Connors, said by Stephen Tobolowski. <laughs> or stepping in the puddle. And we're kind of gradually becoming aware of the campus community. The college is called Bayfield. And it turns out the mascot is the Bayfield baby. <laughs> now... I have never heard of a college where the mascot is the babies. Usually you want to pick something warlike uh, to the point that it becomes like a problematic stereotype. You know, you want the, the drunken belligerent Irish or the <laughs> or the, the wild savages or something. Right. Not the babies, but that's what they've got here. It reminded me of the human beings on Community. I hadn't made that connection. That's good. With the creepy suits that they inhale the uh, the makeup on the face and collapse. Yeah, that's, that's good stuff. <laughs> it's like faceless and androgynous. <laughs> that, I, that would be a more horrifying movie for me than this one turned out to be. One of those but, things chasing you around? Yeah, I think yes. so. <laughs> uh, but the baby, they sell this mask that people wear. It's like a cartoonish cabbage patch doll baby face with a big single tooth and it's common enough that a lot of students have these masks but of course this is going to be the mask that our killer will wear in just a little while so early on it raises the question of who is the baby who's behind the baby mask eventually tree makes her way back to her sorority house and we meet a few of the sisters The sorority is led by kind of the queen bee, whose name is Danielle. And we get the sense that she's overbearing. We see her judging people. 
making sure that the sisters adhere to the strict dress code and eat only acceptable foods. Yeah, she's the she's the mean girl, the Regina. What's her name in Mean Girls? Regina George. Yeah, Danielle is the Regina George character. You know, you, you can't eat chocolate milk. You always have to dress this way or that way. In a sense, though, a lot of them are mean girls, and Tree is not exempt from that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I kind of got Scrooge, well, Phil Connors vibes from her, but it's not too far of a leap from there to start talking about Scrooge again. Uh, in a way, this whole movie kind of reminded me of the version of A Christmas Carol where Scrooge is portrayed by Barbie, which which does exist. I didn't know there was one of those. Yeah, I thought it was impressive. I mean, so we'll get to our good things and not so good things later, but they managed to graft a Phil Connors-esque self-redemption arc into this slasher comedy. And and they kind of did it not in just a throwaway manner. Like, you, you really do feel like the character tree grows and becomes more selfless and more self-aware as the movie goes, which is kind of impressive, really adhering to the Groundhog Day roots of making sure the character learns a lot about themselves and becomes more selfless as the movie goes. Yeah, I like it. The arc was done well. Although I will say, when I was researching, um, writing up my notes for the podcast... It said the director, the screenwriter, somebody said they named the character Tree because trees have to grow. And that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> that's, that's pretty bad. Like, oh my god. It's, it's bad enough that Carter seems like a self-insert of the scriptwriter. But no, I, I do like how they give her some room to grow. At the sorority house, we also meet Tree's roommate, Lori, who, not to be too condescending or controversial, she is plainer than Tree. She is not as good looking. And I think that's important for the events that are going to transpire. And she kind of comes across as less of your typical sorority mean girl. Right, she's not she, she she's not tarted up with all the makeup and stuff. And she remembers that it's Tree's birthday, which I don't know if you're about to get to that there. Oh yeah, we haven't mentioned that yet. That's important. This is a birthday movie. We could have just as easily have done this back when we covered Rock of Fire. Right, for your birthday. Yeah. So uh, it was my dad's birthday on Monday, so we'll just say tribute to tribute to him. There you go. But yes, Lori presents Tree with a cupcake, which she throws away, which seems unnecessarily spiteful. But it maybe it's partially due to this uh, diet regimen that they show. It's definitely a moment that reinforces that Tree is not a a lovable person at the start of this film. Tree is also repeatedly being called and texted by her father over the course of the day. You know, makes sense that she'd talk to your parents on your birthday. But she keeps ignoring it. Uh, as the soon-to-be looped day progresses, we find out a few more things about our characters, such as that Tree is in a relationship clandestinely with one of her professors, who is this British biology professor i was wondering did you get the sense that tree is like pre-med or something 
Is this a medicine program? It was definitely some sort of science. And there is a remark, I can't remember if it's in the first one or second one, where the professor makes some line about how you can't coast in my class, essentially, if they're not in a relationship. And I kind of got the sense that it was some sort of advanced science. I think it is at some point revealed that it was a, a biology. Yeah, he eventually specifically says advanced bio. Although early on, like the first 20 minutes of the movie, he's just got a bunch of formulas on the board. And I assumed he was a physics teacher. I assumed this was going to pull in the, the quantum physics science like in Palm Springs. But that turns out not to be the case. Yeah, I think Palm Springs primed us for that. I, I was thinking the same thing as well. But this teacher is sleazy. He's sleeping with his students, despite the fact that he's married. He's also British. I don't know. I think that adds to his villainous <laughs> nature. Uh, later on in the evening, Tree is heading across campus again to get to a party somewhere. But she goes through this tunnel that's like under a bridge or something. Very sinister seeming. And here she is waylaid by a figure dressed in a hoodie and one of the Bayfield baby masks. And we get a little bit of the classic slasher movie, ducking and dodging, where, oh, is she going to get away? No, she's not going to get away. The long and the short of it is the baby shows up and stabs her to death. Oh, yeah, this is one of the more suspenseful and almost creepy moments of the film because Tree sees a little music box playing Happy Birthday to you. And it very much sets her on edge, and the viewer as well, before this this baby appears and stabs her. Yeah, this is our purest horror scene, I would say. But now we're going to diverge a little bit from that pure horror, because we get some science fiction elements, some fantasy elements. When Tree wakes up with a start, and what month is it? It's time loop month. She is back in Carter's bed and comes to realize that she is looping. So I got to say one element of this that they did not dwell on too much. It got brought up maybe once or twice that I think would be just maybe the scariest thing about this movie is waking up with a bad hangover every single day. Oh, man. Yeah, I agree. That would be rough. And in fact, we'll get into it more in a little bit, but... It's more than just a hangover. She bears, like, healed evidence in her body of being hurt by these murder attempts. I, successful murders, I guess. The loop starts over any time that she dies. And that's the only way that we see it happen. So we don't know, really, if just going to sleep or just letting the clock run out will still loop. Yeah, I actually had some questions about that. Without spoiling everything that happens here that we're about to talk about, if it was only triggered by her dying, how would she ever know that she was actually out of the loop? Because you haven't died yet. So when you eventually die, everybody dies. What if you came back to Carter's bedroom 50 years earlier if you died when you were in your 70s or whatever? That's a great point. I hadn't thought about that, but I definitely did run up against the fact that they seem pretty certain that it's dying that resets things without really even testing other ways. Right, and also that it's 
specifically related to this day. Carter kind of makes this theory at some point that it's like a karma thing, some sort of cosmic thing about this day specifically, and they just kind of take that as a given that they have to escape this specific day. But if it's death-related, that raises some more questions, I think. Right, but here in this first looped day, this first repetition of the day, she does a few things differently. The main thing is she doesn't go through that creepy tunnel this time. She goes to the party via a different route where she finds that her friends are throwing a surprise party for her, which that's cool. That seems like a good thing to have happen on your birthday. Uh, we get introduced to a character named Nick, who is the first person she sees at the surprise party. And of course, he's in the killer mask, the, the baby face. One thing this movie does the right amount of times, in my opinion, is fake outs of whether it's a person who is wearing one of the masks, which, as you mentioned, they seem pretty common around campus. Or is it, in fact, the killer? Yeah, if I, I myself, maybe surprisingly, have not watched all that many slasher movies, but this is a trope that's always there. Like in the Halloween sequels, you got to have a kid who is wearing a Michael Myers mask for Halloween, even though how do the people know that that's the mask to wear to fake out the cops? <laughs> but you got to have somebody like instigate a armed standoff and then suddenly turn out to just be, hey, man, I was only fooling. I'm, it's, I'm just wearing this spooky mask that I found. Right. Definitely get some of that here. Basically, Nick is just here as yet another possible suspect. Like, oh, maybe he could be the guy. Uh, and he comes off initially as charming to Tree. But then when they're alone together, he like does this weird dance. It's off-putting. He also blasts music, which is a very cool, formal moment because people can't hear what's going on around them. And so we get some stuff happening in the background that Tree can't hear. Oh, good point. I will say the production designers had a chance to fill a lot of college dorms with interesting stuff and capture different aesthetics in this movie. It's not quite to the level of Everybody Wants Some, where they had all the different 80s click scenes with like the honky-tonk and the disco and all those different scenes. But we do get like the movie nerds room and the sorority girls room. And then we see Nick who has a really large dorm room. This is a, <laughs> this is a very big room, but he's got like this techno dance hall set up with like mirror balls and lights swinging all over the place. Yeah. Disco balls and things. Uh, but while she's got her back turned and the music is pounding, suddenly the killer pops in and takes out Nick and kills Tree once again. So it's back to the loop. And we don't necessarily need to go through every single iteration because this is the thrust of it, is that she keeps getting killed. And all the precautions that she takes, it still ends up with the killer popping in and killing her. Yeah, I think the next one was she decided to board herself in the room zombie style, but it turns out the killer was hiding in the bathroom and all sorts of variations like that. 
Right, so clearly somehow the killer is able to get close to her. Tree, at this point, opens up to Carter, the guy she's been waking up in the room of every day, who is sort of like, you know, a stereotypical nice guy. He's just, he's there at the fringes. He was there for her all along. You know the rest. But he really does seem to be looking out for her. So she opens up to him, and she tells him that she's time looping. I was a little surprised that she went with this to the film geek before the scientist teacher. Yeah, a little surprising there too. I chalked it up to she was probably thinking about the loop the moment she woke up and he was the one there. So it was just a matter of propinquity. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But together, Carter and Tree decide that she should spend her loop trying to find out the identity of her killer. So she's got to solve her own murder, just like dead on arrival. Oh, good good connection. I will say this movie feels a lot like Scream. Uh, I mean, you could say, since that's an homage to all slasher movies, that makes sense. But uh, specifically in Scream, we know that the killer is one of a small handful of like Scooby-Doo-style red herring characters. It's like one of these college characters that we've met is the person who puts on the mask and goes around killing people. And so at this point, you're going through the people thinking, huh, maybe it's the British professor. Maybe it's Carter. There's this guy who comes up to her every day saying, hey, why haven't you been texting me back? And she says, we only went on one date. And you think maybe it's that jockey slighted guy. And then, you know, I'm trying to spin more creative theories. Like, oh, you know what would be creative? This person's got their whole body covered. What if it was a girl? And so I'm thinking maybe it's Danielle, the mean girl who runs the sorority. Another one. I don't know if you noticed this. She's occasionally flipping on the TV and there's a couple of shows she repeatedly sees when she flips on the TV around, I guess, all around the same time of day. But one is a news report about an escaped serial killer. And the first couple times you see it, it's only on it for like just a small portion of a second. Not enough to like draw focus to it, but enough that if you're looking out for it, you kind of file away. I bet this will come into play. And sure enough, it does. Uh, As things are repeating tree kind of follows around each of the suspects trying to learn more information about them and she's noticing that she's starting to feel weaker and weaker to the point that she eventually passes out and has to go to this hospital that's there on the campus which this is what made me wonder if she certainly some of the people seem to be in like this pre-med program because there's a a full a full scale hospital on the school grounds which i don't know if many colleges have that i'm pretty sure my college did not at least i never needed it but here at this hospital the professor gregory is a doctor there and he comes in and tells her that her body shows evidence of like multiple grievous wounds that have healed so she's got like scar tissue from her past lives but none that we can see on the surface so it's all internal 
This is a pretty big departure from Groundhog Day, where they made it very clear that nothing physical carries over from the reps of the loop. This is a violation of Groundhog Day rule number one, as I noted in a previous episode, which is that upon some trigger, the character returns to a previous moment unchanged except for memories from from the first time through that moment. So here she actually is changing physically and degrading. And we actually see some of that, like with each death, sometimes there will be, as she wakes up, some small continuation of the death whether it's screaming because she realized she was being stabbed. There's one, I can't remember which one it's in, where she, I think, drowns and sputters water as she wakes up out of her mouth. So there's some hints of that as it goes, that this is impacting her in in a way that it, it didn't in either of the time loop movies we'd watched so far. And as Dan said, as Tree is going on her investigations... As the day repeats and repeats, we are seeing little snippets of news reports until we finally see the whole thing, which reveals that there's a serial killer who has been, I I guess he is being transferred or something, or he's just been arrested and he was injured or something. So they brought him to a hospital and specifically, of course, they brought him to this hospital here at the college campus. I really don't know how realistic that is. I I don't know how hospitals work, but it seems like if you have this guy with a history of murdering college co-eds, you'd want to take him to like a (laughs) medical facility specifically for dangerous prisoners and probably not bring him onto a college campus where he's guarded by like nurse interns. Yeah. And like Frank, the security guard. Yeah. Sipping his coffee. Yeah. I mean, I would, imagine that high security prisons have their own hospitals and I mean, we'll get to it. I was wondering why it had to be a guy at a hospital. I was like, why, how about he just escaped from prison, but it ends up playing a role. Right. I will say initially I was not a fan of this killer guy, this serial killer who suddenly gets introduced halfway through the movie because, you know, by this point I had settled on the, interpretation that the killer has to be somebody we've seen already and to just have it suddenly be like actually it's this random murderer turned me off a bit but let's keep watching see that's interesting because i actually didn't mind it like it was kind of for me in line i I hadn't really i haven't seen scream so i hadn't really adopted this idea that it had to be someone that we had seen a lot i mean Certainly, I thought about that. I was like, who's it going to be? But it didn't bother me when it was this sort of manifestation of evil. Like, he's not really even a character. He's just like a force of evil. And to me, that kind of aligned aligned with this idea that it was going to involve her own character growth as like kind of the counterpoint to the evil that was pursuing her. But I could certainly see how it would feel like a cheap thing to introduce a big bad villain, you know, at least a third, maybe halfway through, like you were saying, and, and have it be that guy. I guess also the fact that we saw snippets of him on TV made it made me made it bother me a little bit less. Right, so it was set up a little bit. Right. And as you briefly touched on, there is character growth going on through all of this. Uh, we find out, for instance, that 
tree. Part of the reason she's ignoring calls from her dad and just kind of seems over the idea that it's her birthday is that she had the same birthday as her mom who has been dead for a couple years now. So it kind of brings up memories, sad memories. Right, and kind of compelling bit of character drama where it's like this past trauma of loss happens to be associated with her birthday, and that is the day that she's going through. And it's a little bit like how Kristen Milioti's character was waking up on the day when she did something absolutely terrible to her sister and confronting that every single morning. Like she's spending this whole day staring down the trauma of that shared birthday with her mom. And it kind of forces her to confront it and address it, not by like being a mean girl, but by like actually working through that stuff. But we're heading now into the thick of showdown territory. Tree sees this news report in full finally about this killer, John Toombs, who's being held at the hospital on campus. You know, logically, she assumes, oh, this guy has a history of killing women, and somebody's running around killing women, and he's here, so it makes sense that he's the guy. So she rushes to the hospital to hopefully make sure that he doesn't escape, but he does anyway. You get the sense a little bit, at least I did, of like in 12 monkeys where he's going to go and make sure that there's no way jeffrey goins can kickstart this whole thing and just by bruce willis being there it like he plays a role in it all starting off oh that's interesting yeah right she's putting herself right in harm's way yeah she's it's in a sense a self-fulfilling prophecy so she gets in this fight with tombs and gets the upper hand, but not before he kills Carter. And so she decides, oh man, if I, you know, if bringing Tombs to justice is what ends the loop, then I, I can't have that happen because now Carter's dead and we would go forward with that being the status quo. So she kills herself yet again to start things over. And now she goes through a rep of the day where, as far as she knows, she's figured out the murderer's identity and she'll be able to apprehend him properly at the end of the day. But in the meanwhile, she is going to do the quote-unquote virtuous playthrough that we talked about last time. You know, she's going to do what Bill Murray did that ended his loop. Just do everything as perfectly and as kindly to everyone as possible. So, like, everyone, everywhere along the way, she's helping out. And she goes and meets up with her dad and has a nice lunch with him. She reconciles with her roommate who's resenting her and stands up for the one sorority girl who gets shamed and dumps some chocolate milk on Danielle's head, uh, etc. You know, I think they round up tombs at some point in there or just don't let him get out. But it all ends with a very 16 Candles inspired shot where... She and Carter are sitting in her windowsill with the little cupcake between them. And they share the cupcake, and she goes off to bed, sure now that this will end the loop and she'll wake up on the next day. But nope, still the same morning again. She deduces that what was different this time around, you know, she says, how could it have looped? I didn't die. But then she realizes, wait, what if I died in my sleep? Which... 
is not what came to mind for me initially. I just assumed that going to sleep or just the day ending makes the loop loop. Exactly. They, they, they still never disprove that. Yeah, my uh, thought was, oh, you just didn't understand the rules of the loop. It wasn't that you died, you know? Right, but it turns out that she did die in her sleep, and what she is able to figure out is that all along, this cupcake has been poisoned. The plain Jane roommate has resented her so much that she has been the killer all along. This roommate named Lori. What I didn't even realize at this point is that in no previous iteration of the day has Tree ever eaten the cupcake. She's yeah. always thrown it away or put it aside or ignored it. That was really clever, I thought. It's one of those things you don't think about until it's actually pointed out. Yeah, and they did do a good job of picking a character to be the killer who I had totally overlooked. I just had not paid attention to her at all. Well, since Tree never ate the cupcake, Laurie had to initiate the masked killer plan, I guess on the spur of the moment. But I, I guess when you have to do that sort of thing, it's handy that a bunch of people at your school already wear a creepy mask all the time. Uh, so she is a nurse, or training to be a nurse, at the hospital, and was able to release Tombs as a red herring. And, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Like, why would you even need a red herring? It seems like she somehow knew that stuff was going to be looping. And she needed somebody to throw off the scent. Yeah, because I don't know. If, if you're just going to kill her and you don't... What's the point of the mask if you're just a student? Yeah, it's like, what's the point of the mask? Yeah, and the one uh, witness is going to die. Exactly. If she's going to die and not be in a time loop, this would be a lot less complicated. Uh, but the motive that's given for why Lori did this is that she is actually obsessed also and is having or has had a relationship with this same professor, Dr. Gregory. And you, uh, you kind of get the sense that he spurned her once Tree came on the scene or something. Right. It's weird, though, because there had been no previous reference that, that I caught, at least, to a connection between Lori and Dr. Gregory. And it wasn't until I really thought about it later. It's like, oh, he's a professor. We see him at the hospital sometimes. And she's a nurse and she's at the hospital. It kind of makes sense. But it's not like she's in the same class as Tree because there's a bit where Tree has to run to make the class and Lori doesn't run with her. Exactly. Yeah, it seems like Lori is more involved with whatever this pre-med program is, whereas Tree just has like one class that's maybe a lower level class. Hard exactly to make that clear. But we had also just not seen very much of Lori outside her role as roommate who hands cupcake during the loop. So, I mean, we had seen her many times because everything is repeating, but we didn't know much about her or her specific relation to other characters. So, yeah, it did seem to come out of nowhere when she says, I couldn't, couldn't stand seeing you with him over and over again. And Tree says, what, Gregory? And I wasn't even sure who Gregory was at this point because I had been thinking of the, him as a teacher. So I, I would think he'd be called Mr. So-and-so or Professor So-and-so. Yeah. I guess when you're sleeping with someone, you probably call them by their first <laughs> name. But I did not know who Gregory was at this point. I had to go back through. 
Yeah, because we have kind of a little cast of suspects, and they're all pretty generically named. I guess Carter is probably the most unusual name there, but it's like Ryan, Gregory. I don't know what the other ones are. When she said Gregory. There's a Nick. Yeah, I was like, wait, hold on. Who's that one again? Just a bunch of generic white boy names. So then, now that Lori's secret is out, Tree confronts her, and they, they tussle. It ends when Tree shoves the poison cupcake into Lori's mouth and kicks her out the window of the sorority house. And she falls to the ground. Anytime someone falls more than like 10 feet in this movie, we see blood splatter. I don't really think that that's how falls work. I don't know how high it has to be before flesh is rupturing, but... Yeah, it's like everybody in this movie is a latex glove full of tomato soup. Right. Fluids be spurting. (laughs) Uh, but now we get a real nice ending when Tree reunites with her father and she starts a relationship with Carter and sure enough, the next morning, they've escaped the loop. It does a thing that I think is also a trope of slasher movies towards the end where it seems like things are over and then the protagonist gets a scare that makes you think, oh wait, it's not over. But then you realize, oh, wait, it actually is over. It was just a misinterpretation from the the main character. And this time it's Carter pretends he acts like it was the day that she was living through over and over again, which I thought was pretty cruel. Although I guess from his perspective, she was just crazy. And like, why would you think that it's not okay to do that? Right. I mean, they did do even a moment of that in Groundhog Day where it still plays the song. It still plays... I got you, babe. And then the DJ comes on. Oh, man, I'm getting sick of that song. Yeah, that's true. That's a good one. And you don't see Andy McDowell in the bed until the camera moves strategically so that you see her as we hear the different dialogue. Right. And we have a moment at the very, very end where Ryan, the roommate, barges in again, complaining that they're still sexiling him for another day. Right. And that's Happy Death Day 2017. A couple of thoughts there on the ending. One is, as the movie's kind of fading away, we hear Carter explain to Tree, hey, this whole thing you went through is kind of like that movie, Groundhog Day, because we know he's a movie buff. And she's like, what? I've never heard of that. Which I think was kind of lampshading this thing where people don't recognize movies, the movie tropes, you know. That mm-hmm. when they're in that exact scenario, she she hadn't seen Groundhog Day, so it never occurred to her or whatever. Yeah, or like how in The Walking Dead, they just apparently in this universe, no one has ever seen a zombie movie before. <laughs> so like some people call them walkers, some people call them, you know, ghouls or whatever. They have all these different names for zombies, and nobody's like, oh, this is like a zombie story, right? Just circling back to this big twist that it was actually Lori and not the serial killer. You expressed some reservations, and I want to second those reservations. This did not work for me too well. I can be a twist junkie, but this one felt like it was a twist because they absolutely needed to have a twist and didn't have really a good reason for there to be one. Like I actually would have preferred it. Just cut out that very last loop, have it end with the Groundhog Day and the one-time fake-out of Carter acting like it was the day before. I didn't really feel like this enhanced the film at all. Although I can see what you're saying about not liking it being the serial killer as the guy, 
when it's not one of the cast of characters we've met throughout the movie. I can buy that, but this this twist didn't didn't really do too much for me. Yeah, for me it was really just that that guy showed up late into the movie and I was pretty sure based on my steepage in the genre that it had to be one of these ones we'd seen from the beginning. And then when it came about with the lorry twist, it did kind of set the ship aright for me. Although I wasn't fully in love with that either because like we said, I hadn't really gotten a sense of the motive like that she was in love with the professor too mainly i didn't really like the professor (laughs) if you're sleeping with your students it's it's skeevy at at best possibly illegal depending on what all is going on so i i didn't really know about their relationship so wasn't as invested in that motive whereas if it had been the rampaging serial killer i mean his motive is he goes around killing women so if he was still doing that it would make sense I guess I just didn't really buy that Lori would be so hellbent on immediately killing her roommate that she would make it happen that day every single day. And that also she was like, I guess I could go back and watch and figure out which times the masked person is tombs and which times it's the roommate. But it seemed like the baby face stalking her was always very like athletic and imposing. And yeah. Very strong and stuff. I think, realistically, this may be controversial, too. Even if the whole body is covered, I think you could tell a man from a woman. Uh, If they're coming at you and, like, overpowering you with a knife. But, I mean, Scream did this same thing, where it's like, but what if it's one of the women? So I haven't seen Scream, so don't spoil it any further. Okay. I actually have not seen all of Scream either, but I I know that either... uh, The good thing is there's been like four sequels, so at (laughs) least in one of them, the killer turns out to be a woman, but I don't know which is which. Gotcha. But I do see that in um, the Happy Death Day Wikipedia article, uh, one of the taglines or one of the like elevator pitches was Groundhog Day meets Scream. So I think it's apt to bring it up. Yeah, I agree. One last thought on the, the Lori twist is that the only way that I kind of buy it is kind of highlights a theme throughout the film that the cruelty that happens to these characters is not a product of this kind of vague and unnameable evil thing, but just the way that all the characters are kind of shitty to each other. And this is kind of in line with that. And that's what needs to be corrected for Tree's life, for her arc to be complete. She needs to recognize that and, and fix her, her ways there. Right. Trees need to grow. (laughs) We did not have to wait very long for a follow-up for this film. The first Happy Death Day was 2017, and we got Happy Death Day to you two years later in 2019. For me, it was even shorter than that because I wasn't aware of this film until 2021, and then as soon as I finished it, there was a sequel ready for me. Yep, I queued it up on Amazon... It's not on Prime, but I, I, you know, I paid the couple bucks. And of course, you finish the first one, and it says you might also like the second one. So I texted Dan, is it cool if I watch this also? And we then talk about it, and he said he had already watched it. So we were on the same page. And I think it's good to discuss it here for a couple reasons. One is, how in the heck do you make a sequel to a time loop movie? Because it's already all about repetition. 
and just the same thing happening over and over and over again and how do you make more of that story without seeming a hundred percent just hackneyed and just doing the first movie over again i agree i was surprised they managed to do a sequel and was curious how lazy it was going to be just the same exact thing particularly because i think the first movie is quite clever it's like it's hard to be clever twice in a row and they they came up with a way to make it still feel fresh yeah and when you have a high concept it's like how do you do a sequel beyond just same high concept again right but i mean if you think about time travel movies like back to the future comes to mind back to the future was really good and they did sequels that were also very good and not exactly the same thing particularly I think this is where you're going with this back to the future one versus back to the future two. I think there are some analogies here. Yes. So they do specifically call out back to the future two by name. During oh, that's this right. film. Yeah. Just like they call out groundhog day in the first one. I think it's less apt in this case, but we'll get into that as we go. So when the universal logo rolls at the start of this movie, remember that it kept looping at the start of the first movie, but before the second it like splinters out into multiple copies of the universal logo playing at once. Yeah. The, the version I had, I didn't see the universal logo. So I was curious if it did something like that. So that's pretty cool to know. Yeah. So there's multiple all next to each other. And so of course I was already thinking by this point, Oh, they're going to do a multiverse thing where there's parallel dimensions. Spoilers for a couple minutes from now. That is what's going to happen. So I actually read the logline for this before I watched the movie. And the par- the parallel universe things isn't in like the first 10 minutes the same way it is for the time loop. It takes a while for that to really become clear what's going on. And I was kind of annoyed that the logline said, this time trees in a parallel universe. Like, that's where this is going to go. Have you seen the episode of Rick and Morty where there's parallel timelines going on? No. I recommend it. There's like this time traveling creature and it's like a time cop and he has to make sure that things unfold the way they're supposed to. But like every time Rick or Morty makes a decision differently, the universe branches. And so things are happening mostly the same way. But anytime there's this slight variation, a new branch is created until there's 64 copies of the timeline going on and the screen is like a kaleidoscope oh that sounds pretty nifty i i recommend that this doesn't get quite that crazy but it's sort of the same thing i would also say that in this movie happy death day to you we throw most of the trappings of horror movies out the window it's not entirely gone there is still a slasher and a baby mask but it really feels like they kept that in there both because we're still doing time loop stuff, so because it was there before, it's there now. Uh, but also, I mean, it's following up on a first movie, so you got to still have some baby murder mystery. One thing about, we'll get to our good things. There are some pretty thrilling and well-shot sequences in Happy Death Day, the original. And even if it's not the scariest movie, and even if it's kind of a lightweight, uh, colorful, friendly slasher there's still some some tension there and as you mentioned happy death day to you is like we're just a sci-fi comedy that has a few murder scenes in it 
Right. Fully sci-fi comedy now with a couple murders. And just the tone seems very different. Uh, to me, it did feel a little like Back to the Future. Uh, maybe also like an Avengers type thing. There's like a team now, like a, a science team. And they're going to solve the problem together. And just the way it was like edited and the way that there was music accompanying all the action, like inspirational, epic action music felt like an Avengers movie to me. I can see that. Uh, we won't go as in-depth with the, the plot summary here, mostly just to highlight how things are different in this one. Uh, but it starts out with Ryan, the roommate from the first movie, who keeps coming in and being like, oh, man, you know, what? why why are you sex-siling me? At least you got lucky. But here we start out with him in his car, and he walks up to the dorm to give his usual line, his usual grousing. And after that, we follow him back to his science lab, where he and his group of, like, Big Hero 6 friends have built some kind of high-tech sphere that we instinctively understand is somehow linked to the time loop. It's some kind of time machine or other. This whole segment was a fake-out for me, because... I thought it was going to do what it did in Happy Death Day 1, where we see this long walk across campus repeating every single day. And I thought we were going to get that same thing with Ryan walking from the car to the dorm. But as we'll get to, we don't see it maybe twice, I think we see it. Yeah, I agree. I thought this was going to be Ryan's story now. We sort of continue that thread a little bit. Also important to note that suddenly we have a time machine thing in the mix which was not present in the first movie. Uh, it was like Groundhog Day before in that we didn't know what triggered the time loop to happen. It also fills in some blanks from the first movie. I mean, obviously explaining it, but there's a recurring thing in the first one that kind of adds tension, which is that the power goes out at the same time every day. And here we get an explanation for the power going out. Oh, good point. I didn't even put that together. You're totally right. But Ryan is continuing to go through his day, and we see the dean of the school who balks at this machine using up all the school power, like you said. And so he unplugs it. Uh, later on, Ryan is attacked by the baby man. He's back in the baby mask. But Ryan wakes up to find that now he is time looping. And so, like Dan just said, you think, oh, we're going to get his day over and over now in this movie. And it's going to be, you know, Happy Death Day was Monday the 18th, and now To You is going to be Tuesday the 19th. But they diffuse this pretty quickly because immediately Ryan goes back to Carter, and of course Tree's in there too, and... Immediately, Ryan says, guys, I'm time looping. What do I do? Somehow he knew they were the people to come to. And Tree's like, oh, yeah. And you were stabbed by a baby guy, right? Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. So he streamlined <laughs> that entire process. <laughs> yeah. Any other time loop movie, I feel the protagonist is going to wish they had somebody to take this to right away and, and be accepted. It's kind of like in Palm Springs when... Kristen Milioti's character first goes in the loop and Andy Samberg is like, oh, it's one of those 
infinite time loop scenarios that you might have heard about and basically just hand waves it all away but even more streamlined i would say and so you know for a moment i thought this was going to be ryan's story but immediately now it's back to being tree and carter's story again although ryan is going to stick around they go and they track down the baby that chased ryan down the previous night or you know the previous iteration and they find out that this baby under the mask is also ryan it's a second ryan from a parallel dimension that was a good surprise that that was one of my first oh wow moments from from this film being clever and this new ryan you know we get a little bit of the back and forth kill him no kill him Uh, But the new Ryan insists that one of the two of them is going to have to die to close the loop. And I I don't know exactly how that works, but they're they're the scientists, so they know (laughs) that this is what's required to fix things. I think at this point the Dean storms in again, and we get this chaotic confrontation between just about everybody. The two Ryans, and Tree, and Carter, and the science friends... And everybody's yelling at each other. And in the midst of it all, the Ryan that we've been watching previously powers up the time machine. And it produces an energy blast that, like, knocks everybody across the room. And everybody is flying around in slow motion. And this is when you can tell, huh, this movie probably had a higher budget. Yeah, we get a little bit of effects there. Kind of like the dilation effect in in palm springs when they go into the energy cave yep and at this point now tree jolts awake to find that she's back in carter's bed again and not only is it you know the morning again it is the previous morning again it's the 18th her birthday and she's back in her loop from the first movie and so we see the same events that we've grown accustomed to as she walks across the campus but slowly she notices that some things are happening slightly differently than we've gotten used to and so what it boils down to is she is in a different dimension now she's been blasted through to a world where things are almost the same but for subtle little differences right this is the big pivot in the movie so the first half hour or so you think it's this Ryan's movie, but the same kind of time loop that we saw in the first one. But then here it pivots back, and now we're back in Tree's perspective. And she's, in fact, reliving the same day from Happy Death Day, but an alternate universe version. So pretty clever, right. and I'm still resentful that this got spoiled for me in the, the log line. <laughs> so at some point, one of the science friends says oh this is like back to the future too and okay maybe in some ways i still think it's not very much like back to the future too i think the point they were going for is that it involves parallel worlds which is something they talk about in back to the future too but doesn't have a ton of bearing on the way things play out because in Back to the Future 2, you kind of need to draw out a map to, like, follow through all of it properly. But, like, after they've done what they came to do in 2015, Doc and Marty go back to 
1985, but it's not the 1985 they remember. It is dark and scary, and Biff Tannen rules the world. And Doc postulates that this is because some other instance of time travel has happened earlier than 1985 and resulted in a bad 1985, which he describes as parallel universes, but is not really, or at least doesn't have to be for the story to make sense. Because there's no way to jump from one parallel level to another parallel level in Back to the Future 2. You can only go forward along the timeline that's been changed or go back before the change happened. So there's still essentially only one timeline. Well, I still think it works basically the same way because if you go forward in time or backwards in time and something is different, then how is that distinguishable from an alternate universe? I mean, it still feels like an alternate universe. And so the same way that they went to 1985 and it was not the 1985 they knew. So Tree goes back one day and it wasn't the, I forget what day it was. Uh, it wasn't her birthday that she knew. All, all these things had, had changed from it. Obviously it's, but it's not from cascading. Right. Yeah. It's It's more so, in this one, it's more clear that there are parallel worlds existing because you can hop from one to the other without having to go back and undo the difference right or whatever because in back to the future 2 the only way to get back to good 1985 is to go back to 1955 and stop the change right so it's it's really the same thing as back to the future 1 doc just draws parallel worlds on a chalkboard that's that's my thought on it at least not not necessarily authoritative, but here we really do have parallels that can be jumped one to the next, is my point. I think that's fair, yeah. Boy, we're getting back into 12 Monkeys territory. Right. I would say that the way this movie is like Back to the Future 2 is that we revisit events from movie one, which is 100% something that happens in Back to the Future 2. And they're slightly different or from a different angle or something. Right. What are some of the things that are different in this world? Well, Lori is with Gregory, the professor. So the murderer from the first movie who had been resenting not being with the professor is in fact with the professor here. And then the big one is that Carter is dating Danielle, the main mean girl, rather than, I guess, single and unattached, ultimately to be destined to get together with Tree. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. It made me wonder what the tree who is supposed to be in this world has been doing all this time. It it just kind of seems like there's a tree-shaped void for our tree to come in and fill. Which it does kind of address. There is kind of this consideration that because the world is different and the, everything played out differently, the life that tree's living, and there's one big twist that i think is played for a big emotional punch but that that's not really tree's life and tree's memories it's like a, as you said she's filling a tree-shaped hole but not this tree right because there's a medium-sized punch that carter is dating danielle and so is not available to tree in this world but the biggest one is that tree's mom is still alive in this universe and so now she's got to decide going forward, oh, maybe I could fix this time loop 
and stay with things the way they are here? And would that really be what I would want? Now, of course, because it's the 18th again, there's still a killer in a baby mask running around. Although I'll point out there didn't have to be one. If there are enough things, enough things different and the person who had been the killer is satisfied, why does there have to be a killer? I thought it would have been more daring if there wasn't a murderer or it was some something else. I don't know. True. I, I absolutely agree. Uh, but the serial killer is still there in the hospital and there's still somebody running around stabbing people in a baby mask. And yeah, I would say that by this point, I was kind of over the baby. It's like, we're clearly taking this movie in a different direction in some ways. Uh, they're clearly going for a different tone at the very least. And the stabby baby is the clearest trapping of the horror genre, which they seem pretty intent on departing from. But they're still here and they have to be dealt with. But we find out pretty quickly that it is not Laurie this time in the baby suit because the baby stabs Laurie right right off the bat once we run into him. Right. And so then we're kind of back at square one. Which of our cast of characters is the murderer this time? Although now we've seen clones and duplicates, which has never really addressed why there was two of him. But I was wondering if they were going to go more spacey weird with who the the actual candidate would be for this one yeah i don't know but i guess one reason that they needed a killer still is because that's still what they're using as the method to restart the loop is the central person has to die so ryan died in his loop and we saw the 19th over once more and then tree got knocked back to her loop and now she is still dying each time to to make things loop and so she goes and talks to ryan and his scientist friends in her loop brings them up to speed of what's going on she says she knows about their machine and that they've got to get it working to hopefully end the loop that's initially what she wants is end this loop and i'll stay here in this dimension where my mom's alive and the scientists put their heads together and they tell her that they're going to need the right algorithm to make the time machine turn everything right again and stop time from looping. I don't know if this is really an algorithm. It, I think it might just be a formula. I'm not a mathematician. Dan, you've got more background in this. <laughs> I've taken a computer science course called Algorithms. I mean, they're very vague on what it is. It does feel more like a formula, but uh, it goes down the path of what I was talking about earlier about how I would want to figure out how I carry things over from loop to loop. And they spend some time talking about this and how she needs to ingest and memorize all of this stuff. Yeah, I thought this part was very interesting because they say, oh, we're not ready to solve this math problem yet. We need a lot of time to do all the calculations. But since the clock resets every 24 hours presumably, although really it only seems to reset when somebody dies, so what if nobody died? We don't know. But they're pretty sure they're not going to have enough time to do all the calculations. They would need some kind of record that holds over between the reps. And Carter says, well, hey, Tree's memory holds over, so what if you just have her memorize everything? And that's the solution that they use. That each day they will give 
tree an updated version of the algorithm to memorize so that each day she can come into them and say hey guys I'm working on this project with you in this time loop that I'm stuck in and here's what you've done so far right and we don't get many of those like where she comes in and very quickly has to explain what's going on and then give them the latest version of the formula but I thought that was kind of a fun idea of like including other people in the time loop and I really just thought this idea of essentially her having to learn this quantum bullshit against her will was a very fun variation on, you know, Groundhog Day where he learns ice sculpting or where Kristen Milioti decides she's going to learn all the science stuff herself because she's an essentially an unwilling participant in this. Yeah, this is a big ask. She has to work really hard. But I mentioned 51st dates in our last episode. This part especially made me think of 51st dates where she's got to basically come in each day and make a presentation for them. Of, right. Okay, bring you up to speed. <laughs> I haven't seen 51st dates. Oh, we should watch that one. It's it's a high concept romantic comedy that, I don't know. I It's one that I always think, oh, this is going to be dumb. And then I watch it and I was like, I, I kind of like that. So I'd be down. So another thing that happens here as they're getting closer and closer to this algorithm, we get two of the things that were for me most effective in this movie. One is basically after she's kind of given them the algorithm and they determine it's wrong, she has to start the loop over again. So we get this montage of her doing fun suicides, wide variety of suicides, which is another one we didn't really get. We There was maybe one suicide in the first movie, but she'd like goes skydiving wearing a bikini with no parachute she does a running jump into a wood chipper all sorts of let's just figure out some goofy ways to kill the main character and then uh the second thing that we get is you kind of mentioned that she had decided to stay in this loop but she starts to question that because carter had kind of talked to her about how well this isn't really your life you don't have memories of these things happening even though your mom's alive that's not really the life that you lived, the memories that you have. You're living in a fantasy that's not a real thing, which he really empathized and put himself in this far out fantasy situation pretty well to, to have that kind of insight on the spot. So then Tree eventually changes her mind and decides, okay, no, I'm going to actually go back to the other one, the one where my mom is dead, where I got together with Carter, where Lori was the killer, the original universe timeline that we knew and so she basically gets to go say goodbye to her mom in a way that she knows is the last time but the mom doesn't and man that hit me hard I guess maybe because I'm a parent and also I have my own parents who are you know starting to age but and also just really well acted uh, I mean I want to talk more about this uh, this lead actress and kind of what she does for this movie in a bit but this thing where she kind of has to accept that she has to say goodbye to her mom again after we knew the first movie dealt with the trauma of her every birthday confronting and remembering her shared memories with her mom for me was a gut punch. A surprisingly dramatic moment for what is had become an increasingly broad and silly sci-fi comedy. Yeah, it was definitely emotionally powerful. I have come up with a story that used this as a device. I can't say I wrote this story because I have yet to actually write it down. 
but uh, a story like this where a character has a family member die and then is able to access this other dimension and realizes that that's not their life that's not where they belong so it, good to see that uh what seemed good in theory works well in practice right um but to jump back for just a second to the montage of suicides there is one where tree skydives in a bikini out of a plane with no parachute and this is another instance where we get the exploding garbage bag effect of hitting the ground which i guess is probably a little more realistic from a plane yeah at least for that one it's not like 15 feet out of a second story window it's from thousands of feet in the air that one (laughs) was a little more plausible although it's it's a really uh curiously and and compellingly shot where she kind of mugs for the camera when she's mere feet from the ground. And I forget which sorority sister is, if it's Danielle or there's this one Asian one who keeps getting splattered and the victim of some of this stuff throughout the, the first and second movie, if it's her. But it's a really funny moment. They do like a slow-mo freeze frame of Tree doing a, a mug for the camera and then it speeds back up and her body explodes on impact and gets the sorority sister who starts screaming in panic. And I thought that sequence was another time where we saw the effects of the increased budget. That's true. Yeah. I think that's a good point. But ultimately tree decides that she needs to head back where she belongs, go back to her normal universe and timeline. Uh, but before that can happen, of course, we got to figure out who the killer is here in this world because it's not Laurie, so who is it? And we find out, and it almost feels like an afterthought at this point because so much else is going on. Yeah, there's no, no almost about it for me. This is just an afterthought. They needed to reveal someone as the killer because they needed to, and so this is what they came up with. But here it turns out that it is Gregory, the doctor professor. And apparently, according to Wikipedia, this was an early plan for part one, that the killer would be the teacher. I mean, certainly it's a possibility. It could have been any of a number of characters, like we said. Uh, But here it's Gregory, and then sort of as a last-minute, second, extra, ultra-double twist. Also, his wife is one of the killers. So they both got baby masks. It it made no sense to me, really. I didn't see the motive. So at first, I guess it was that there was like a little snippet we saw before we went to the alternate dimension of, um, golly, is it in the alternate dimension or is it in, I can't remember, but basically of Laurie confronting the, it must be in the alternate dimension because it's Laurie, but Laurie and the teacher kind of having a spat. And so I guess the idea here is that he doesn't want the secret of the affair to get out because it would ruin his career and arrest him and, He'd be known for all the skeevy things like you were talking about earlier and also would potentially ruin his marriage. But then all of a sudden his wife is there too. So the wife already knows about it. Okay. I guess then it's about your professional reputation. And then for no obvious reason, the professor shoots the wife. Oh, and I want a divorce. I didn't follow that line of reasoning at all. I was completely checked out on this portion of this movie. It's like, but wait a minute. That's, that's not a divorce. That's (laughs) different from a divorce. That's a murder. And you are probably going to be implicated. I don't know how you think you're going to get out of being implicated in this murder. I guess it's still the tombs thing where it's going to make it look like the serial killer did it. 
we get this whole ensemble heist scene here at the end, which is really what feels like the climax because the Dean takes the time machine away from them and locks it in his office. So they need to do this quick science team heist montage that they're going to break into the office, get the machine back and back to the future style, have everything in the right place at the right time to blast tree back to her dimension. And they're able to do it. We get a lot of dramatic music, a lot of dramatic editing, uh, some humor. Danielle gets to be a part of the group for a while, which we haven't really seen thus far. This movie let Danielle do a little bit more. Right, it's this sort of goofy bit where she there's a reference that she wants to become an actress and she's going to play Helen Keller, although she gets her confused with Anne Frank which I thought was a good joke and is a mistake that I have made before. It's two people you tend to learn about at the same point of your elementary education who both have tragic things related to them. And I have mixed them up in my head before, at least the name that goes to the person. But there's this gag about that. And then she essentially gets to pretend to be a blind person for the Dean and like thwacks him with a cane and keeps distracting him and stuff. And this whole, this Dean character reminded me of, I don't know, like the the teacher in breakfast club or any of these college comedies where there's oh, always... yeah, or the principal from Ferris Bueller. Yeah. There's always that one spoil sport teacher. Although in this way it was sort of like a reverse one because he was stopping the learning of quantum physics, not the partying and skipping school. I'll say the person that I get Anne Frank mixed up with is Lisa Frank. <laughs> which they make the, the colorful key yeah. stickers. They, they both have diaries though. <laughs> But everything works out. They get the machine in place and Tree gets sent back to the timeline that we saw at the end of movie one. And it seems like everything is good. But we get a post credit scene where representatives of DARPA, which, what does that actually stand for? Do you know? I'm going to look it up right now. My friend works for DARPA. It's like they, they do the self-driving cars. Like yeah. back before everybody was doing self-driving cars, they were doing self-driving cars. So presumably they do like vehicle tech. It's Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. But they're like the secret project government group. Right. And the guy at the head of this group seems a lot like Nick Fury. So early on, I was thinking, you know, just because the music sounds a little Avengery doesn't make this movie an Avengers movie. But <laughs> then we get a post credit sequence where this Nick Fury looking guy shows up to recruit the science team and their time machine ball. That's true. That is very Marvel. I hadn't thought about that. There was no mention of Infinity Stones or whatever they're called. No, but they say, we, we need you. You know, S.H.I.E.L.D. needs you. Yeah. DARPA needs you. Come and bring your time ball. And we need to use this time loop tech for the common good. So the door is open here for there to be a sequel at some point. And that's 2019's Happy Death Day to you. Another double feature for us. Yes, a little bit of a surprise, but it was convenient. The Both movies were equally accessible. All right, so what are some good things that you appreciated about the first film we're considering today? So I really loved this first movie a lot, actually. I thought there was a lot of things it did really well. And for me, the central thing that made the movie work was Jessica Roth as Tree Gelbman. 
I was kind of blown away by how good she was. I have never seen her in anything else. Never even heard of her. And I thought she was just kind of be, at least at the start of the movie, this kind of dumb, trashy character who we kind of get a vicarious thrill when she dies in all these awful ways. But she's actually written and acted like a real character. And she's really funny. And she sells every single... There's like a lot of beats she has to play. It's not just that she is good at this or good at that or has good chemistry with this. She has to be a scream queen. She has to be a sort of thriller hero. She has to have some of this dramatic growth. She has to be funny. She has to have some romantic chemistry. And she nailed it all. I had no complaints with her performance. I thought she was amazing and really held the movie together. And I'm going to be looking forward to her in, in other films. I would say it all hinged on her being believable and all of those things. And that worked for me. I agree. The character was strong in terms of being well-written. They gave her a lot to do and perfectly cast. I wasn't sure if I had seen this actress before. She seemed kind of familiar. You've said she was in La La Land, but I think it is a pretty minor part. I think she there's like a scene, a music number where... Emma Stone goes with her friends to a Hollywood party. I feel like she must be one of the friends. Gotcha. I, I think she looks a lot like Blake Lively. And she has a more sprightly energy than Blake Lively, but she looks like her and has some kind of similar mannerisms, I thought. I also liked what it did with genre. It's definitely not what I was expecting. When we went in uh, last week, I said, all I know is it's a time loop horror movie. And I think it leans a little more heavily on being a time loop movie. Although, certainly in the first one, horror movie is there. It's fair to call it a horror movie. Yeah, I agree. It's I've mentioned this already. It's a PG-13 college slasher, so it's a lightweight version of it. It's very colorful, not gloomy or much scary. The, the scenes that are scary are like thriller- is when is this guy going to pop out of the box? Because we know he's going to pop out of the box at some point, but when and where is it going to happen? And even those are not that jarring. They're not like the worst jump scares I've seen. But I like the tone. I thought it suited it to be a more comic, lightweight slasher than like a really kind of darker horror movie. I think I just like those kind of horror movies in general. I don't like the feeling uh, of, of some of the other horror movies where it gets a little darker, but... Yeah, it worked for me. And I thought throughout there was some pretty good humor. I don't know. It, it just struck me as unique. This was a grab bag of better things than I was expecting. I have found that that may be a common element in movies that I end up really enjoying is just that I had low expectations going <laughs> in. That's true. You brought that up with Bucket of Blood as well. Yeah, I, I just think it holds together well. The mechanism of the time loop plays in nicely to the getting chased by a guy with a mask and a, a knife in various places popping out and kind of creatively ties that into a story that also has an emotional arc. It is an example where it fits together and, add, and ends up being, in my opinion, a little more than the sum of its parts as opposed to less than the sum of its parts. Did you have any other good things to cover? Um, I think visually there's some really fun moments and clever moments. You can tell this this guy, uh, Landis, has some pretty strong visual sense there. I liked when 
early on the chocolate milk drops and splatters everywhere and it kind of drips down her face and it very much makes you think of blood dripping down a face. I like this one particular death where the killer chases tree down in a car and she's kind of screaming in the car and light. I don't know if it's lightning or no, I think it's from a cop car. It's like uh, blinking lights. You see the killer's face superimposed in a reflection over tree's face. And it's, it's just a clever moment oh i noticed that the yeah something about the lighting it's like the police lights when they blink it like makes the window opaque and the baby face gets like superimposed over tree's face on the other side of the glass it had me wondering for a moment if the it was foreshadowing that the twist was going to be that it's like an alternate version of tree just like ended up happening with ryan but i thought that for just a minute oh yeah, I mean, if it's if everything's repeating, that would be interesting. I don't know quite how it would work, but that could definitely be compelling. The other thing I wanted to say was I really liked the end credits of the first movie. Mm. It's everything is like birthday cards, like pop out or uh, po- like pop up books. Yeah, I saw that. That was cool. What about some not so good things? So I've already mentioned my biggest one, and that is that I don't think the twist of having the roommate be the killer improves the movie at all. I think I would have liked it more if it had just been the serial killer and just kind of abstract force of evil. And really the story was more about her overcoming this generalized evil than a, oh, we got to have one last twist in a whodunit, and it's the roommate all along. There is some cool execution with it. Like I, I liked the the little bit about the cupcake, but from an overall story, I think it just tacked on an unnecessary 12 minutes to the film or however long it was. Yeah, I think that's fair. My expectation was just pretty strongly baked in that it was going to turn out to be somebody we'd met a little bit earlier. And so when that happened, the Pavlovian sections of my brain felt rewarded. Nice. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing that stuck out to me was I really got a feeling that Carter was a self-insert on the part of the screenwriter. Like, yeah, he here, this film nerd is going to be the guy who has all the answers and who gets the super beautiful girl. And Carter is always going to save the day. We, we talked about this with Nate, and I can't remember if it was on air or off air when he came for the apartment, but how it's just so common for movie characters, protagonists, to really like movies in movies or to be writers or something like that because that's what the writers and directors know. They're obsessed with movies. They're obsessed with writing. Exactly. So that was just kind of glaring to me. I mean, I, I didn't hate him. He, he yeah. set up as a likable guy, but he, he felt like a contrivance. I think it managed to, because it was only like 10 loops and she didn't spend that much time getting to know Carter... It kind of avoided the Andy McDowell creepiness of him having spent thousands and thousands of days with her, and she only spent 12 hours with him. Um, there's like a nod to that in the second movie when she thinks that they're boyfriend and girlfriend, and he's like, really? And it's like, because they had just met basically the day before. But yeah, it didn't bother me too much. I, I thought he was a pretty good character, and I, li- I kind of liked their chemistry in the way that they, they did. But I can see what you're saying about him being an insert character. Now, let's take a look at the sequel. What did you like there? Well, I liked that it was different, and it wasn't just the same thing. 
and I liked a few of the specific bits that they opted to include. The two that I mentioned, the the suicide montage and the her kind of having to say goodbye to this life that included her mom, included Laurie as a nice person and not a murderer, and like having to come to grips with that and saying farewell to that actually worked for me on a dramatic level. Those were two things. This was like kind of a potluck movie. You got a little bit of this, you got a little bit of that. Bring bring some goofy suicides, bring some, oh, it's really a clone. Bring some quantum physics, uh, bring some tear jerky mom drama, more character growth. It was a whole platter of stuff. And uh, some of it worked for me and some of it didn't. But when it worked, I, I really liked it. Save the drama for your mama, as they say. <laughs> I enjoyed how the sequel started right off where the last one ended. That felt a lot like Back to the Future. Oh, cool, yeah. Especially where you've got the, you know, you've got the couple there in the bed and Ryan is kind of the bridge character who barges in. It's like Doc showing up saying, something's got to be done about your kids. And and then he runs off to his time machine. Right. Because, yeah, uh, we touched on it, but... I had been wondering, how in the world are you going to make a sequel to this movie? What do you do? And that they channeled the Back to the Future sequels. I mean, maybe that's an easy thing to do. Maybe that's a lazy fallback. But if you're going to look for good movies to emulate, you could do worse than Back to the Future. Also, I thought it was cool to see them with a little bit more money to throw around. Like I said, with the High School Musical sequels. It's like we get to revisit all our same characters and maybe they have some fancier toys to play with. Yeah. Another thing I liked is the first movie plays around with, you get these various bitchy mean girl sorority sisters making up the cast and you get different flavors of that. And here you get a cast of nerds and various flavors of nerds, which I'm a nerd myself. So I appreciate it. Yep. To me, it felt like big hero six where you got this group of, smart engineer kids composing this little super team who gets recruited by Nick Fury at the end. Right. Did you have anything else good about the second one? I'll repeat that I appreciated and enjoyed their twist on the, you use the loop to learn a skill when she was essentially forced into having to learn quantum physics to pass along the algorithm from loop to loop. I liked that mechanic a lot. She's the only one who can do it. She's the only one who persists. And then you see by the end that she's actually learned a lot of it and can articulate it. What about some not-so-good things about Happy Death Day to you? Well, in the spirit of it's it's the full potluck of different types of uh, little movies, little mini-experiments in this world, um, I thought some of them didn't work as well. And mainly they were the ones that really retread on the last movie. The villain and the twist and, oh, it's this person we knew, but we didn't know it was actually them did basically nothing for me. And I just thought it kind of dragged out the whole thing at the end where she's uh, she's suffering again because the loop takes something out of her. And we had kind of see oh, and Carter goes to save the day, but she wants to make him survive. That felt like a retread to me and it was a little bit less interesting than some of the more, some of the more fun stuff, the more unique stuff. My main bullet point is by this point, I no longer care about the baby. <laughs> Well said. Although, yeah, any time that it was repeating, which you got to think is the easiest trap to fall into if you're making a sequel to a time loop 
movie. It's like, well, things have to repeat. Right. That's a good point. So yeah. How do you how do you even move on from that point? I think they did a pretty good job. Like I enjoyed watching this. I was vibing. I watched the first movie from like nine to ten thirty, and it's like, well, you know, it's still early. I could watch the second one from ten thirty to midnight. They used music cues in this second movie. I need to think on it a little more and come up with some more fitting adjectives. But it really did feel like a like a comic adventure movie similar to a back to the future or one of the marvels sure yeah where i mean it just it sounds very different from the more horrory first chapter like there's there's a way that a horror movie sounds uh as encapsulated i think by the scary music box in the tunnel and there's a way that a more hopeful time travel adventure sounds yeah i agree and I think I would spin the soundtrack or the score of Happy Death Day to you. Another complaint I had, and this kind of ties into what I was saying a few minutes ago, but something about the pace of the movie felt a little off to me. It's like in the first half hour, your conceptions are shattered every 10 minutes about what's going on. And then once we kind of hit the alternate universe and learn the rules, relearn the rules and what's going to go on there, there is a lot fewer of twists. I felt like it needed one more twist on the whole time manipulation mechanics to, to happen at the end. Would you watch part three? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. it. It's working title is Happy Death Day to Us, which makes me think or dream that there will be something with multiple people time looping together. And I want them to go full on the heist thing. I think there's promise there. I liked... The idea of that, I, it was kind of broad when it was the the dean who was like the kind of caricature dean and Danielle being her her blind act. But I wanted to, I did want a full on heist, and I think if you have multiple people time looping, you can start to get really creative with the way that you manipulate what goes on in the world. I want it to be like a Rube Goldberg machine where they're changing this and that, and and you start to see all these things happen. That's just my pitch. I'm sure that that Christopher Landis has his own ideas. And even though the second movie was a flop, going back to the Blumhouse thing, they could still make a third one as long as it's a similar scope budget because they still made plenty of money on it. So something I want to call out that I, I've been lenient about so far is as we go on in an episode, you'll kind of rename people. Okay. So it's happened in a couple other episodes. I, I believe Roy became Ray <laughs> briefly last episode. But I'll say that uh, in our time together today, I referred to Jordan Peele, who you then called Jason Peele. And the director of both of these films was Christopher Landon, who has recently become <laughs> Christopher Landis. <laughs> Must be pretty confusing to listen to one of these podcasts with all the mix-ups I do. It's, it's a time loop. Dan's in a time loop. <laughs> he came from a different uh, dimension. Where Jason Peel made Get In. I'll use my first 100 days to work on my memory recollection of getting names right. No, it's it's all good. I, I should keep it in front of me. I'm sure I do it too. No, it's all right. So did we want to talk ever so briefly about how is it and how is it not Groundhog Day? Well, some similarities I noticed, at least in the first movie, the loop starts with a character waking up in bed. And it repeats 
if the character dies. But would it loop if they went to sleep? Or if the clock just ticked past a certain point? We never see them try, so we we can't answer that. Yeah, it's got the specific trigger of the death, but you're right, it doesn't really fully explore it in the way that in Palm Springs and Groundhog Day, they devote significant portions of their time to the characters pushing the limits of the time loop. It's not done here at all. In the first movie, if you said it's the death doing it, I could accept that. But the second movie introduces a concrete cause, like a time portal generator that is making this thing happen. And so then what is the link to the death? I don't know. But in both stories, Groundhog Day and Happy Death Day, the central event is a significant day. What could be called a holiday, although a birthday is maybe not a holiday. I think you could say maybe Groundhog Day is not a holiday. <laughs> but it's, it's a well-known observation. I think by this point we can say that a good time loop story is going to have a character going through some kind of arc where they learn about themselves and they grow as they pass through this loop. Yeah, and as I mentioned, I was surprised they put it in a horror one, but they definitely did. Uh, there's also some romance. That's been something that's tied all of our movies together so far, but I would say that's pretty common in blockbusters in general. Yeah, any movies. you got to tug the heartstrings, get people invested. Romance is a good way to do it. Some ways it's not Groundhog Day. I think the most obvious one you got to say is there's more horror here. There are horrors in this house, this yes. bloom house. Um, also, it doesn't repeat as often. You get the sense that because she's got to die each time, she's eager to get through it. And I think she says a couple times that it was only like 11 or 15 repetitions in the first movie. Somewhere yeah. around there, about a dozen. I feel like they gave two different numbers, but both of them were around a dozen. But this means that there's less time for experimentation. She's not learning ice sculptures here. On the other hand, it gets a little less existentially weird and dire, which I liked. It made the relationships formed feel more like actual relationships than Groundhog Day, for example. Another big difference that we've commented on is this idea that you bear the scars of past repetitions, and it kind of piles up. That's very different from Groundhog Day. And I also felt like it wasn't quite consistent between the two movies. It seems like the scarring would only ever get worse, but like she seems to rebound a little bit. Like there's parts where she's better off. Yeah, that felt like mostly something they threw in there to give a sense of tension on resolving the situation. Because Yeah, raise the stakes. Yeah. Give it some stakes. You can't just repeat forever. But I agree. I didn't viscerally feel that. She was getting worse and worse from time to time. It made me think maybe we should watch Primer. Have you ever seen that one? No. Is that the one that is known for having a really crazy timeline? Yeah, for being super, super confusing and hard to understand. I wouldn't say that I fully understood it at all. But one thing that I do know happens is the time travelers hit on the idea that they need to like keep living the day the same way again they need to like do things the right way over and over again as it progresses they start like bleeding from their ears they mm. start just undergoing injuries from doing things over and over again and i don't know exactly how but it looked uncomfortable <laughs> 
the bleeding from the nose or, or I guess the ears is one of those things that in a movie or a TV show means something really bad is up. But in real life, probably just means you got a head cold or dry, you know, it's not particularly humid today and uh, you rubbed it the wrong way or something like that. Now, remember, Ralphie, if your nose bleeds, you're picking it too much (laughs) or not enough. What's that from again? Uh, Chief Wiggum says it. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I think at long last, are we ready to give a value judgment? Yep, I am ready. Okay, so, Dan, as our guest, when it comes to Happy Death Day from 2017, is it good? Yes, it is good. Um, I liked it a lot. I really had a great time. It was more fun than I was expecting. I feel like the central performance really brought me in, as I mentioned, and it was appropriately thrilling in a fun way. It hadn't completely discarded any semblance of a horror movie. It was it was a little... It had the trappings, I guess you would say, of a horror movie, of a slasher, but really was more about the character and the storytelling gimmick and solving this fun mystery and getting to know the cast a little better. And I just had a blast of a time watching it. Um, I was really tempted to give this an exceptionally good, but then I remembered that I, I really felt like the twist sucked some wind out of my enjoyment of the film. It's not terrible. It doesn't ruin the movie by any means, but it does dampen the spirits a little. And so I'm going to give this a high, very good, a six. Nice. So I watched the two movies that we're discussing tonight back to back, and they in some ways kind of bled together. Just the feeling, the way I felt about the movies carried on from one into the next. I'm going to try to sever that connection now uh, because the things that you've been saying have really made me think. So what I was ready to do was give a five to both of them. I think I'm not going to do that. I will put a six, a very good, on Happy Death Day. Because in addition to being entertaining, it delivers a more cohesive tone and story. It really would work self-contained. If there was nothing past the end of this movie, it would be just as good. And for all the reasons that you said... The lead actress is perfectly cast. The story concepts of slasher movie and time loop went better together than I ever expected. And it doesn't compromise the satisfying character arc that you get in a time loop movie like Groundhog Day or Palm Springs. It's here in its fullness. So six. Very good. Cool. What about Happy Death Day to you, Dan? So I think you could probably gather this from my tone. I think it's a notable step down. I still think it's it's fun, though. It has a lot of fun stuff. It's very creative. It doesn't follow the r- traditional sequel horror movie r- rules. It kind of reinvents itself in a way that's pretty compelling. It decides to go full on. We'll try a little bit of everything, which if you're going to make a follow-up to a movie that's a time loop and you want it to be different that's a way to do it and i think to that extent it worked but i also think it's less than some of its parts it doesn't really hold together because it's so varied um it has some stuff that really works like the confrontation of saying goodbye to mom and the suicide montage and some of the other stuff we talked about but also 
it just kind of parts of it just feel kind of there and not really worth thinking about or engaging with. I'm going to give it a low five good. I, I flip back and forth between goodish and good. And I think there's enough stuff that I really liked. And I just kind of still love the, the main actress and the tone and the creativity that it lands in a five out of eight for me. A good. Oh man. I thought we were going to differ, but we've been in lockstep for a couple episodes now. This one also gets a five from me. A good. I enjoyed seeing the characters again. I really like that it kicks off right at the moment that the last one ended. Uh, It's easy to do that when you make the movies really close to each other. That uh, seems to be the model for a lot of sequels now because it helps to have everybody together, have access to all the same locations. And I do like that they tried something new. I was enjoying seeing where things went, even if it was a little bit of a grab bag and a little strange at times. I'm very curious to see what happens in part three. Yeah, I'm excited. Maybe it'll be even more balls to the walls and sanity. Yeah, we need more Rick and Morty concepts pulled in. Yeah. Cool. So that was the Happy Death Day series as it currently stands. But we are not out of the loop yet. Not at all. So, Dan, if you can say anything about tomorrow and the days ahead, what do you think is on the horizon? So, so far we've had the kind of forefather of time loop movies, Groundhog Day, that we kind of briefly touched on. We had a romantic comedy time loop movie. We had a horror time loop movie. Next up is a raunchy teen comedy time loop movie. Yes, one of those exists. It is 2014's Premature. So one thing to know about our podcast is we have the explicit tag because I dropped the occasional F-bomb in casual conversation. And I've read that you should do that if you have any chance you're going to drop the occasional F-bomb. I think we will be earning it in our, our that explicit tag pretty thoroughly in our next episode. I did a sneak peek and we're, we're going to have some interesting conversations next week. So that's 2014's Premature. All right. Well, I look forward to it. Assuming tomorrow comes... I will watch that movie. (laughs) And I am looking forward to it, too. Uh, Drawing some interesting connections with previous Goods episodes that I saw in this, and it should be a fun conversation. Thanks, everybody, for joining us here at The Goods, a film podcast. Hope you keep returning and returning and returning as Time Loop Month moves ever onward. (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.